If you're able, would you remain standing as we continue our reading of Psalm 119. We are at verse 33. This is our sixth sermon on Psalm 119. We're uh, going to read the fifth stanza of the verse, that's the, of, the, of the psalm, is the stanza that every verse starts with the letter hey. I have nothing clever to say about the letter hey because uh, the, he, the um, mod, biblical texts use Aramaic characters. And the Aramaic characters for this letter is so different than the original Hebrew character that, that you know, the Hebrew character was a, a little man with both arms up. And that's kind of this, this particular um, section has the idea of the, coming to the Lord, beseeching Him for, for His grace. It doesn't look like the little house that's uh, here. So this is the word of our Lord, verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall keep it to the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make my walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. Establish your word to your servant who is devoted to fearing you. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your judgments are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me in your righteousness. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would speak to our hearts, even as we consider it this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. We all say, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. It is, as we, as we read through this psalm, as we study this psalm, as we memorize this psalm, it is becoming clearer and clearer how this psalmist, the person who wrote this psalm, as the representative Christian, and I know this is an anachronism to call him a Christian, but he represents us as he writes this psalm, it's becoming clearer and clearer how he relies on the Lord for life itself. For him, there is no life apart from the presence of God in, in his life. You know, we all rely on people. There's no such thing as a self-sufficient person. We're made to need other people. We're made to be relying on other people. Every person was made to do that. Every person is made to need somebody to need people in his or her life. The philosopher once asked, I can't remember what the philosopher's name was, but is every man an island? And the answer is no. We're not made to be by ourselves. As much as some of us like to be by ourselves sometimes, as, as much as some of us like to be recharged by ourselves sometimes, we're not made to, to not need other people. We're not made for self-reliance. And above all, above needing other people, all of us were made to, be, to depend completely on the Lord. Every last one of us in this room and every last human to ever live was made to depend on the Lord. And as you listen to this sermon and understand what this stanza, or this strophe, this section means, 
Consider what part the Lord plays in your life. Consider if that's just that, that the Lord plays a part on your life instead of being all of your life. I pray that you'd listen with an open heart as the words go forth from here. Let me challenge you, all of us, including myself, to repent from any self-reliance in our lives, any attempt to live life apart from God. And let us examine our lives. Are you trusting, are all of us trusting in the Lord through Christ for all there is to trust? The Apostle Paul encourages us in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 by saying this, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. So as you listen to this, listen with an open heart. Listen from, uh, with the attitude that's coming from the Word of God. It's coming from somebody who loves you and who is also a sinner and a, a fails like you do. That we might together consider the presence of the Lord in our lives and our reliance on Him. And as we consider these eight verses, the first thing I want us to notice is how all the requests that uh, the psalmist makes in this psalm is directed to the Lord. Though if you notice, there are several petitions, several things that the psalmist is asking, and he directs them all to the Lord. Because the Lord is the ultimate provider of all these things. If you look at verse 33, he asks the Lord to teach him his statutes, his word. In 34, he asks God to give him understanding. In 35, he asks God to make him walk in the path of God's commandments. In verse 36, he asks God that God would incline his heart to his testimonies. In 37, he asks God to turn his eyes away from the worthless things. In 37, again, he asks God to revive his heart. And brothers and sisters, how much we need that, that revived as the old Puritans used to call it, the revivification of the Spirit, just to revive the coming back to life of our hearts. In verse 38, he established your word to your servant. 39, turn away my reproach. And then in verse 40, revive me in your righteousness. All these requests directed to God because he's the one on whom the psalmist relies. He's the one on whom the Christian relies. All these requests, all these pleas show the psalmist's complete reliance on, on the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the Christian understands that apart from God's grace, he or she can't do anything as far as obedience goes. Apart from God, we can't do anything. We may try to pull ourselves by our own bootstraps. We, we do something minimally good and we pat ourselves on our backs. Yet true good only is achieved through total reliance on the Lord. And that is what our catechisms teach. That's what they mean when they say that our chief aim in life is to glorify God and to enjoy, to enjoy Him. Obedience that flows from complete reliance on the Lord is the ultimate glorifying act. And the primary way that we enjoy God by obeying Him, by relying on Him. Paul tells us that this must be our primary aim. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9, Paul says, 
Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Paul's talking to the Corinthians. The Corinthians are upset that he's not with, with them because false teachers are telling, see, when the t- things get rough, Paul leaves and leaves them alone. And Paul says, look, my aim in life, whether I'm with you or I'm with somewhere else, is to please God. That's, that's what I live for. And that is our aim as well. And Paul says that the love of Christ compels us to do that. We live for God's glory. We live to please God. We live to glorify Him in obedience because His love for us propels us to do that. In 2 Corinthians 5, the same chapter, he gives us the reason. Verse 14 says, For because, why is it that we make our aim to please Him? Because the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ makes us do that. The love of Christ pushes us towards that. It's interesting that this word compel is one of those words that can mean two things and no no scholar is sure exactly what it's supposed to mean here. It means exactly opposite. It may mean to push or to pull. The same word. So let's take both. The love of God not only pushes us to please Him in every situation, yeah, but pulls us as well. To please Him in situations. As if we were in a rope and we have God pushing us and pulling us towards, towards Him. Compelling us to that through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because He died for us. And in Him we are united to the Father. So all these requests are pointed to the Lord because the psalmist knows that it is because of God that He can do these things. Complete, total reliance on the Lord. Let me ask you this. Who are you relying on right now? Who do you rely on for life of and death? Secondly, notice the commitment to obey the word of God in this passage. The psalmist doesn't simply pray and then wait to be zapped into obedience. He doesn't pray and then forgets the prayer or waits to such a time as somehow he feels like obeying what God says. He commits himself to obedience. In verse 33, he says, I shall keep it to the end. Teach me your ways and I shall keep it to the end. In verse 34, I shall keep your law. In verse 34, again, I shall observe it with my whole heart. In 35, I delight in it. In 38, devoted, I'm devoted to fearing you. In 39, your judgments are good. In verse 40, I long for your precepts. He didn't just sit there praying to God and then, all right, now I'm going to wait here as if I'm a robot waiting for God to zap me or to override me. No, he prayed and then he committed to doing it. And this is not superficial commitment on his part to do the things that God calls him to do. He is making these commitments to God himself who knows his heart. He's not promising these things to you or to me or to the neighbor or to the wife or to the kids or to the friend. He's speaking to God himself who knows exactly what's in his heart. The one to whom we can't lie. We're not able to. There's no hiding intentions here as he commits to do. To please the Lord. To walk with the Lord. To walk according to his word. You know, I think sometimes we hide ourselves behind we are sinners we hide behind ourselves that you know what i'm a sinner so the only thing i can do is sin we often behave as if we can't help but sin that any temptation is there we can't help but fall into it that any obstacles that's there we can help but fall because of it any hole that's there we can help but fall into it 
And yet, the scriptures tell us that that's not who we are anymore. If you don't mind, would you turn to Ephesians chapter, keep your finger there in Psalm 119, and turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Ephesians 4.17, the apostle says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk in the, as the rest of the Gentiles walk. So don't do that. that. Don't do that. That's not you anymore. Don't walk in this way. And then he describes that way, what it is. In the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Paul said, that's not you. So don't walk that way because that's not you. You don't have to do these things because that's not you. You are a Christian. You've been changed by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God dwells in you. This is not you. And he continues in verse 20. He says, But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard Him and been taught by Him, as the truth is in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, this is not you. So, brothers and sisters, as much as we fail, let's not, hard, let's not hide behind, Oh well, I'm a sinner. That's all I can, that's all I can do is sin. And then go on just fulfilling the loss of our flesh. Because that's all that we're doing is a, what we've considered theologically acceptable way to say that we just want to do what we want to do. Rather, Paul says, put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God, into righteousness and holiness. The commitment that the psalmist had was to do the things that he asked God, to obey God. And Paul says, that's what we do because we're not our former selves. We've left the team. We're to put off that jersey and put on what's consistent with what, who we are in Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, don't, let's not make excuses. At the very least, be honest and say, you know what, I'm going to sin because I want to. I'm not going to follow God's word because that's what I want to do. Instead of hiding behind theological platitudes that are nothing more than an excuse for us to fulfill our flesh. Let us commit to what the word of God calls us to do in obedience to the Lord. Now, we, we look overall, of all eight verses, what the, what the commitments of the psalmist says. Let's now take a closer look at some of the commitments that we find in verses 33 through 40. The first thing I want us to see that the psalmist committed to is to learn from God through his word and to do whatever he learns. Look at verse 33 and the beginning of 34. In, back in Psalm 119. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall keep it to the end. Give me understanding, and it shall keep your law. The psalmist doesn't see himself as the judge of what is right or wrong. He sees God as a judge of what's right or wrong, and he asks God to teach him according to his word, that he might know what's right or wrong. He, he, he doesn't see himself as the one who should decide what parts of God's word is good for him. And which parts are not. He's, he, he doesn't think that he's the one that decides what, that, what God says, what, what parts of 
what God said he should follow. He says, teach me everything and I'll follow it. Because you, God, is the one who is the best judge of what I should do. He wants to understand all that God says so that he can do it. Where are we on this one? Where are you on this one? Are you embracing all that God says and everything that God says? Are you subscribing to the statement, God says, that settles it? You know, people say, God says, I believe it, that settles it. What you, whether you believe it or not doesn't matter for settling it. God says, that settles it. Is that what, how you think? Or are you acting as the judge of what God says? God says, I determine whether that's right or wrong, and then that settles it. Who is the ultimate arbiter? Who is the ultimate decider of what you're going to do? God, as he teaches you his word, or you in your own puny little wisdom to filter what God says in his word? And then he commits himself to observe the word of God with his whole heart. In verse 34, the second half, Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. And we are often willing to commit partially. Uh, I've ever asked somebody to do something or invite them to do something and says, definite, I'll give a definite maybe. We like partial commitments. Right? We, we, we'll, we'll, we'll commit partially, but want to keep something back because we are not ready to give all our sins. We're willing to commit partially to the Lord, but not completely. Are you trying to hold on to any special sin that is dear to you? God, I'll give you 98% of my heart, but I'm going to keep this little corner because I really love what's there and I'm not going to give up. Or are you observing the Word of God with all your heart? Let me ask you this. Are you listening to this sermon even right now at this moment while harboring anger, harboring bitterness, or any other sin? And are you right now thinking in your head, making mental excuses on how you don't have to give your sin up? You're not committing wholeheartedly to the Word of God. The psalmist also delights in the word and obedience itself. In verse 35, he says, Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. He, he, he delights in the word and obedience itself, not in some consequence of blessings that may come from it. He believes that the judgments of God, the way God thinks about right and wrong, is good. And because of that, he commits to it. In, in verse 72 of this same psalm, he says, The law of your mouth is better to me than a thousand, thousands of coins of gold and silver. This man is devoted to fearing God just for the sake of fearing God. In verse 38, he says, I am devoted to fearing you. Are you there with the psalmist? Brothers and sisters, is the word of God good? Do you believe that? That the word of God, whatever it says, is good. Is God worthy of your commitment to him, regardless of what you can get out of it? Is what God says good and right because he is good and right? Or is God your genie in the bottle, where you think that you can just rub the bottle and get whatever you want out of it? Asaph in Psalm 73 says this. It says in verse 25 and 26, Whom have I in heaven but you? 
And there is none upon earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Is that your testimony, brothers and sisters? This psalmist doesn't want to concern himself with worthless things. In verse 37, he says, Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. This word worthless can mean... Oh, there's a, there's a big range of meaning, but they're all related. Worthless means false, men means vain, as in the third commandment, taking the Lord's name in vain. It means futile, means deceitful, means empty, useless, idolatrous, nonsense. It may not even be sin, out and out sinful, but they have no value added. So the psalmist prays. Don't have my eyes focused. Don't have my life focused on worthless things. The, the psalmist doesn't want to be distracted with these things because he wants to come to life in the ways of God. He wants to be revived in the ways of God, not in these worthless, non-value-added things. He wants to approach life from what God values, not from things that are no value added to the walk of the Christian I think it's fair to say, brothers and sisters, that we are distracted people. We are distracted by so many worthless things, non-value-added things. A football game on Sunday. In my case, TV. Social media. And when I say TV, just backing up, I'm a TV junkie. If I could, I watch TV 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Probably the only thing I wouldn't watch is golf. <laughs> Sorry, Leo. I'm not, uh, you know, it's like I'm walking and the TV comes on and I'm like, you know, it doesn't matter what, what is there. And I'm just pointing that out to so that is worthless and, and that I'm on the same boat as you at times. We're so easily distracted. Social media, hobbies, the list could go on and on and on. And these distractions that we are so willing to entertain in our lives can choke our faith. Commitment to football on Saturdays and Sundays and Mondays and Thursdays, right? Those are the days. And then if you do high school, Fridays as well. And I'm sure you'll find some Canadian people playing on Wednesdays too if you really, uh, after... Um, you know, something. We are distracted, and we think that's great, and then we get choked. And I don't mean emotional; I mean that, that choked to death by these distractions in our lives. In the parable of the sower or the soils, the Lord Jesus, in giving the explanation in Matthew thirteen verse twenty-two, he says, "He who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches." Choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. A lot of you have read Screwtape Letters. It's a book by C.S. Lewis in which Uncle Wormwood, Wormwood's the uncle, right? I always forget. Uncle Wormwood tells his nephew, the best thing we can do is to distract Christians. And they're so easily distracted. If we can keep them distracted, the battle is over. Brothers, sisters, what is distracting you? What is distracting us? from full commitment to the Word of God. We must be always aware of how easy distract we are. Distraction do to us what the proverbial boiling, slowly boiling pot does to the frog. 
you all know the story. I don't know if you know, I don't know if it's true, but we repeat them often enough, and they become true, right? That if you put a, a a frog into boiling water, it would jump out. But if you put in in room temperature uh, water and slowly turn up the heat, it will not notice. It will just die in the pot. Is distraction doing that to us? The psalmist says a singular focus on finding life is the way to God. Is the way of God. The psalmist also desires greater faith so he can be more faithful in fear, fearing God. In verse 38, he says, Establish your word to your servant who is devoted to fearing you. He wants to fear God even more faithfully, so he wants to know the word more. The word established here carries the idea of confirming something. The prayer of the psalmist is that God would confirm subjectively to him the word that is objectively established. This, uh, this is a similar petition to the prayer of that father in the Gospel of Mark. Remember that father who Jesus came to heal his son? And he says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. All of us who believe have areas of unbelief in our lives. Every last one of us here in this room who are faithful to the Lord have areas of unbelief in our lives. Every time we sin, we act in unbelief. Every, time, every act of disobedience is rooted in unbelief. So we pray with the psalmist that the Lord would confirm his word to us that we might fear him. Not that there's something that's not there, but that we would accept the truth that's objectively truth as ours. That would be confirmed to us that we might fall. This, this psalmist is not a superhuman. He's just like you and I. Somebody who's had the heart changed by the Holy Spirit, who came to faith in Jesus Christ, or the Messiah to come, who has been empowered by the Spirit of God to obey. So this is not an extraordinary experience, brothers and sisters. Let's seek it. Let's just desire it. And let's throw ourselves into this experience. And at the end of the day, the psalmist is able to pray this because he values the Word of God more than he, the air he breathes. In verse 40, he says, Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me in your righteousness. This is a commitment of a heart that has been changed by the Holy Spirit. Brother, sister, this is a commitment of a Christian, not of a superhuman, but it's our commitment to come to the Lord in, in reliance, in total reliance, and then to obey what he says in his word. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that you are clear in your word. We, we, but we are helpless apart from your spirit. Father, we pray that you'd help us to follow you, help us to, to repent from relying on other things, relying on ourselves instead of you. We pray, Father, that you'd help us repent from being so distracted in life. Help us to be single-minded, singularly focused on following you. And give us joy in doing that. Give us joy in obedience. Father, we pray that we would die, die to the world, and live for you. For asking in Jesus' name, amen.